You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, Try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico, with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes, is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup, and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Baratunde Thurston. Get really good at being with other people and figuring out how to navigate with others and live with others and disagree with others. That's going to serve you the most as all these other things that we thought we knew, start changing and start looking differently. Baratunde Thurston is an Emmy-nominated multi-platform storyteller and producer operating at the intersection of race, technology, and democracy. He's the host and executive producer of the PBS series America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston. He's also the creator and host of How to Citizen, a podcast, and a founding partner and writer at Puck. He wrote a book, a comedic memoir called How to Be Black, which became a New York Times bestseller. I am so excited for this conversation with Baratunde for one reason, and that is he is a creative who does not fit into any single box. He is using all that he has in so many different arenas, whether it's comedy, 
whether it's writing, whether it's activism, and he's doing it successfully. Please enjoy my interview with Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde, how are you? Hello, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I was reading your bio, and then I did a little deeper dive into some of the things that you've done. And I'm just fascinated because you don't fit into any box. <laughs> you're <laughs> box free. Yes. And I feel like you're a complete inspiration to anyone who's trying to follow a creative path mm. and maybe has interest in a lot of things and yeah. doesn't know how to get started. So I'm going to let that be like sort of the introduction. Great. And I really could take this conversation a lot of different ways, but I'm going to begin it the way I begin all my conversations by asking your absolute favorite restaurant. Where in the country, if I know you grew up in the DC, Maryland area, but yeah. you have certainly traveled around, I'd love to know if you could take me anywhere. Yeah. Where would you take me as your favorite spot? I would take you to Harlem, New York, okay. to a restaurant called Reverence. Reverence. Oh, I love Reverence. that name. Yeah, yeah. They're at their reverence.nyc. They got a .nyc domain, which I think is pretty cool. I've known the chef for years, years and years. Chef Russell Jackson. And this is on Strivers Row in Harlem. It is really, really dope, high-end food. A bit of California cuisine infused with like New York hustle and, mm. and swag. And honestly, Chef Russell is probably the best chef I know personally. And I think he's the best chef I've ever eaten from. And that's mm. respect to many other chefs. I've eaten from some good people in my travels and my days, but um, he's very creative. What kind of food? What are we talking about? Like if you go to Reverence, what are you ordering? So you're gonna order whatever he's serving. Okay. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna sit down. It, it's like a chef course situation. So it's an omakase, not, whatever yeah, they kind want. Of. Yes. You're gonna tell him like, are you vegetarian? Do you drink alcohol? And you know, based on the answers to those questions, if you have allergies, like some of the basics, and then he's just gonna take you on a journey based mm. on the ingredients that are available and based on the kind of creative symphony that he's conducting with his team, you know, in in that period of time. So he he calls it California cuisine. He mm -hmm. grew up in Cali, in in two different neighborhoods in the L.A. area, and he spent a lot of time in the Bay, which is where I first met him. He was doing these underground restaurants where you just had to like get a text message and go to a warehouse. <laughs> Maybe here, yes. <laughs> yes. I love that. I love that. It's like so serendipitous. It's like, where yeah, are you're we like, going? are we yes. about to get raided for eating? Yeah. <laughs> so so that's I met him like in 2007 through like running around the Bay trying to figure out where this dude is going to be and what kind of rare pig or unique vegetable prep he would have. So I think it's classic. It's a, it's a bit of French because he had a lot of training in the French style, but then he brings like a little soul to it, but not everything's fried. And then he's mostly affected by Cali, which is like mm -hmm. super fresh ingredients. Yes. The, the dopest produce ever, the fish straight out the sea. Yes. And, uh, I don't know, a lot of love. Yes. <laughs> he's he's treats his staff really well. It's an experience. Yes. Russell puts together this evening, this experience, where you feel like you're on a ship with a captain who knows what they're doing. Ooh, and yes. you're not worried about the height of the wave or the specific angle of the wind. Uh, you just know. You're really cared good for. Hands. Yes. Yeah, you're cared yes. for. Well, what you had me when you said uh, he's going to take you on a journey. Yes. I always feel like 
someone's favorite restaurant speaks to who they are. <laughs> the fact yeah. that you chose a restaurant that has such storytelling qualities is yeah. amazing. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. I was born in the wonderful year of 1977, on the 11th of September, uh, to my mother, Arnita, and to my father, Arnold. Uh, my father was not in the picture for long in my life. He didn't live with us full time uh, during the vast majority of my childhood. And he was killed, shot and killed, when I was seven, eight years old. Um, mm, I'm so, so my mom, sorry. Thank you for that. Uh, my mother was the force. Uh, she was the Jedi and uh, the protector <laughs> and the educator and the nurturer mm -hmm. and uh, the occasional spanker. But she really <laughs> phased out the spanking yeah. um, as she evolved as a parent. She's like, I probably shouldn't be doing this. To which my older sister was like, no fair. <laughs> um, I didn't get the benefit of this evolution. What's going on? Um, my sister Belinda is nine years older than me and uh, helped raise me as well. Mm. So I grew up in, in what I think of as one of the best neighborhoods in the country, mm. Mount Pleasant. It is in the Northwest quadrant of Washington, D.C. It is equal parts black and Latin and white, though my part was black. <laughs> there, there was like subdivisions within the thing uh, and it became increasingly brown during my time there in the 80s. But I loved my neighborhood because one, I knew it, but the hindsight I have now is like in my mid forties, it had everything you needed. I walked mm -hmm. to school and collected my friends along the way, mm -hmm. like some kind of leave it to beaver cartoonish, like that was an actual childhood that happened. We had a, a park nearby. We were close enough to the zoo to be able to go to the zoo and visit the animals. There was public transit readily accessible. Mm. Uh, parking was hard. There were probably too many churches, but overall, we all knew each other. Yeah. And we were in each other's business in that kind of village way, and we looked out for each other. And that is very rare in my adult life. So I, I look back at that tightness, yeah. and I'm like, oh, that was, that was something special. Yeah. And my, my mother you know, took advantage of those options to try to keep me busy and out of the trouble that was brewing in the streets increasingly during the, the decade of the 80s and the decade of the 90s. So there was the Boy Scout troop, there was the Taekwondo at the All Saints Church. Actually, the Boy Scout troop met in one church. The, the Taekwondo met in, a, I was in a lot of churches. Your mom and kept you busy. She really, she was just like, look, <laughs> idle hands, right? Yeah, idle hands. So what, what, yeah. what, if you had to pinpoint when you think about your mom, because one thing I know is that boys love to talk about their mom. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, if you had to pinpoint, because your mom set you up for great success. You went to the famed Sidwell Friends, correct? Yes. yes and then I did. you went on to Harvard, no small feat. So, what was it about your mom? Yeah. What was her sort of guiding principles or what would give us a little bit of her ethos that she was able to inject into you? My mother was complicated and evolving. I think my sister came up with this kind of assessment of our mom. She was always evolving. She mm. was a very self-aware person. And a lot of parents aren't. <laughs> and mm -hmm. most parents don't share their self-awareness with their kids, even mm -hmm. if they are. And as a kid, it's hard to know what your parents know mm -hmm. about themselves. 
our mother was more transparent mm. than most of the parents that I had access to who were who were not her. So the ethos with with her was born of of her life, which well predates mine. This black woman born in 1940, also in Washington D.C. I'm a multi generational Washingtonian, and she came about in a in a tough home with abuse by her father, sexual abuse, with physical abuse by her mother, with mm. abuse by the society at large, which had no respect or use for black people or girls. Mm. And she was in this kind of uphill battle from the start mm -hmm. to find a self-love and purpose and worth and value. And she did an amazing job of figuring out a lot of that on her own. On her own. Yeah. So she's, she's a survivor, uh, and a survivalist, you know, a social survivalist, which led her to be a bit more isolated than I think was ideal in terms mm -hmm. of her own friendships and relationships that mm -hmm. I was able to witness or benefit from because she had just been hardened in a, in a, in a way and had a very short fuse for trust. Mm -hmm. So if, if she felt like you weren't on her side, Mm -hmm. you were off the tee. Mm -hmm. And I, so I witnessed that part. But on, on the other, the, the most conscious animating force was exploration. My mom was an explorer. And maybe because of how limited the world was set up for her, she was committed to busting out of that box. Mm -hmm. So she just did all kind of things that she wasn't supposed to do. Mm. Like what? She became a computer programmer. And nobody tell her to do that. <laughs> there, was, there was no encouragement for a black lady in the, in the 70s with no college degree. She must have had the interest and the aptitude. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and despite a lot of messaging, you know, to the contrary, she was right. very, very smart and very mm. clever and very driven. And people liked her. Mm. So, you know, Ms. Nita, you know, she was very talented. My mom Ms. was Nita. multiple. She played the guitar and she sang... She coded a computer and she loved hiking and she was mm. really good with crocheting. And she was also kind of masterful with animals. We, we always had pets and animals. And she was really good with training and mm. raising and loving. She had a lot of love to give, even though I think a lot of love wasn't always poured into her. But the exploration, I, it's a physical truth because she was an adventurous person. She would tell me stories when I was very young about her taking the car she had when I was born was a sports car. Let's just <laughs> let's just stop there. A two door. She two, had two kids. They everybody was in the car, right? She she could do that. I mean, exactly. I got three kids. That's not going to work. But I that, think the, she could the, do that. The greatest tragedy of my birth was that she had to get rid of that two eighty ZX because <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't plausible to to roll around and and carry my stuff and the bike. So then she got a Datsun B two ten like a hatchback, and then we got the Nissan Maxima station wagon, and ultimately the Isuzu Trooper. We just kept getting larger and larger. <laughs> vehicles as I kept growing. You got more stuff. I, mean, I got gotta, more you stuff. You put your stuff I in it. I got more <laughs> stuff. So my stuff prevented her from rocking her stuff because she had this black exterior, burgundy interior. The way she talked about this car and her dog, uh, Duke, as in Marmaduke, who was a popular cartoon at the mm -hmm. time, this big old Doberman. She and the dog, I forgot the speed. I'd have to ask Belinda. 
but they hit some illegal speed in Alabama. She's like, oh, yeah, me and Duke, we hit I don't know, 110, 120 down in Alabama. And I'm like, are you insane? <laughs> so, yeah, my mom did things like that. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for sharing a little bit about Miss Nita. I always, whenever I see someone who's really, really smart, I always feel like, they have a very smart parent behind them or someone yes. who's really supported them. All you need in life is one person to support you. And it sounds like you had that in spades. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, just as I began this conversation by talking about how you did not, you do not fit into a box and you have so many varied interests that we could take this conversation in so many different directions. Just from that short amount of time, you talked about your mom. It yeah. sounds like she, she sort of mirrored you in that. Or I mirrored her. You know? Yeah, you mirrored her. Exactly <laughs> yeah. correct. I'm curious, when you went to Harvard, mm -hmm. who did you want to be? Like when you're in your years in Harvard, if you can think back, because you've done so many different, yeah. gone down so many different roads, what you you majored in philosophy. What was your thought and what was your dream then? So as I spent more time there, I had these like three exit paths from Harvard. But as I arrived, I was very clear. I was a, a math and science person. I was a math really? and computer science person. And then you yes. switched to philosophy? Instantly. But I maintained, <laughs> and this is this is just my whole life. I'm a yes and kind of person, Kate. Like improv rules. You can't mm -hmm. be forcing some exclusive or uh, mm -hmm. on my life. Let's let's layer it up. Let's Venn diagram it. Let's, <laughs> let's layer it up. I like that. Let's find the intersection and, and yeah. build something, synthesize something different. Like a chef, like Chef Russell, yeah. who's not going to be put in a box of soul food or California food, et cetera. So I showed up. Literally, when I was in high school, I thought, like, I want to be a mathematician. Mm. I didn't quite know what that meant, mm. but I knew I loved math. Mm. Like, I loved it. I really enjoyed doing my math homework. Wow. Okay. I looked forward to it. And when it was hard, I was like, let's go. Let's dig oh, in. wow. This I is great. A, give me a bigger piece of paper. Give you me a don't bigger hear chalkboard. this very often. No, my freshman <laughs> year... Um, I, you know, Sidwell Friends, which is the high school, the middle and high school I went to, 7th through 12th grade, prepared me well. This is a D.C. private school. The Obamas went there when right. I was there. It's famed. Um, right. Chelsea Clinton was two yes. years behind me. And it was a big deal for me to go to this school. Academically a big deal. Financially a big stretch. I literally worked, you know, during high school. And, and my mom obviously worked. And I applied for scholarships to be able to stay enrolled in that, in that academy. When I got to my freshman year at Harvard, I took a calculus course, and the textbook for that course was my high school math textbook. Mm. And I was like, I already have this book. <laughs> I'm a little ahead of you. And it wasn't just that. It was, it, the reason I had the book is because the, the, the woman who created the book, who ran the math department, was friends with the woman who ran the math department at Sidwell. Wow. Like that's that's America. That is yeah. like unfair. That is awesome. That's a yeah. leg up. That is everything. Yes. And me, this little black dude from the hood with the mom and everything. Right. And I'm just like, I already know some of this. <laughs> yeah. Right. As you said, little little black guy from the hood, but also um, a person of privilege. This Absolutely. Privilege, like it's, right? it's this that is privilege. synthesis. So yes. it's all of it. It's just like, yes, I have the murdered father narrative. Yes, I have the high school with president's daughter narrative. 
this is all me. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this is all me. And um, but I remember having a very difficult time with the the homework, the problem sets, as they were called. And my solution was just like, I need a bigger board. I need more space mm. to work it out. So I went, I went to the science center. It's the, the main building where a lot of these math and science courses have. I went into the classroom that had the biggest board. Yes, I'm, I'm picturing like Russell Crowe, beautiful Absolutely. mind Absolutely, yes. very much beautiful mind. Yes. Very, very much, but just with cornrows <laughs> instead. A beautiful mind with cornrows and with chalk, cornrows. chalk dust everywhere. <laughs> just like my hands are white at the end of this. And I was over just all night, just cranking. And I would step back from the board to get the perspective. Anyway, that's a very long way of saying I showed up at Harvard loving math and and really suspecting that I would major in math. Could you do yes. that? <laughs> or, right. or I would major in computer science. But how did you get to philosophy? Easy. Um, so when I, I sampled these courses my first term, I took the, the calculus class. I took the intro to computer science class. I took a history class. Because I was also, I love me some history, and I took a philosophy class. The reason I took it was a high school teacher, a specific human being who planted a little bug in my ear one day when I was still in high school, Erica Berry, who was my English teacher. And she said, you should take a philosophy class when you get mm -hmm. to Harvard. I think you dig it. And that's it. That's all it and took. And you did. So and I just like, I'll it. try, I'll try anything, Kate. Right. You know, like, I, I'll okay, give it a but shot. Here, let, this is a really good, this is a really important question because so many kids, especially kids who, you know, when they get to college, feel this incredible pressure to get a job that pays and to right. succeed. They are looking for a path towards a job. And for you, with everything that you went through in high yeah. school and having a job to go to Sidwell Friends and getting to Harvard, my God, yes. what an accomplishment. Did the, it, You did not feel the pressure because a philosophy <laughs> major, I as hear, I see wonderful where going. as it I see is, where going. doesn't always lead to yes. anything of profit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, how did you wrestle with that? Yes. And how did you reconcile it? Take me through it because this is going to help someone. So I will take you through the choice first yeah. to get to philosophy, the choice to stay in it, and whatever wrestling I might have experienced as a result of that choice in terms of my future. And maybe you didn't wrestle. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, no. But and the this, average it, person would. It's a very good question. And, and it's one that I was asked a lot when I made this choice. <laughs> so I loved the class. You know, in my first term, I had I had a set of options. I was like, I know what the math thing feels like. I know what the CS thing feels like. I know what the history thing feels like. And I know I like the way this philosophy thing feels. Mm -hmm. And I had a great teacher, Anthony Appiah. And I had a great community of students. It was the class that like was the most collaborative, actually. Mm -hmm. And there was me and Edgar um, and Richard Moore. So I had like me and two like... Mexican immigrant kids or kids of Mexican immigrants and, and a student from Saudi Arabia and a student from Germany mm. and me, mm. like the five of us, three dudes. There was only two, five people in your class? No, no, just in our little study group. Oh, okay, we made us We made a study group to break this stuff down. Yeah. And you enjoyed the thinking. You enjoyed spending that time pontificating and thinking and, and wrestling. Really wrestling. Yes. And and I loved doing it with other people. Ah, okay. 
you know, the math that story gets, I told I you. I get it. It was I me by it. myself with the board. Yeah. And that, there's some satisfaction in that. Same, even the coding stuff was a lot of solo. But this was like a team sport. So what did you think you would do with that? Or were you so in the moment that it wasn't in the fore yeah. of your mind? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like you, you send a child off to college to get an education, and right. that's what you were doing. You were like, I'm going to like marinate in this educational world without thinking of what's going to happen in Yeah, years. I was learning how to think. I was yes. playing well with others. I was nearly failing some things as well, and those hardships were important lessons. I, the first leap to philosophy, I loved it. The second leap, I took the next class I took was logic. Hmm. And that was basically computer science. And the more philosophy classes I took, the more I saw the alignment with like the analytical part of me, that the kid that was in the chalkboard the breaking down the equations, mm -hmm. doing the same thing with words, mm -hmm. doing it with phrases, doing mm -hmm. it with thoughts. Yeah. Okay, well, if you say you believe this and then you believe that, then how can you also, that doesn't match, so we gotta rearrange this in the same way that you'd have a module or a procedure or a library of code that's supposed to accomplish this thing. So it's just code actually. Right. So I'm coding with words. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's not actually a great departure Yeah. at yeah. all. I, I didn't abandon anything. I found something that resonated more with me. And then <laughs> this is actually, I haven't told this in a long time, maybe not in this way ever. The idea of how would I make money with philosophy was quickly eliminated. I worked during Harvard as well. I worked by cleaning bathrooms and by fixing computers. I had like three jobs at almost every moment of my time in college, which took a lot of time away from some other college things, mm -hmm. which is something I've only recently, like how much college did I miss from working? But I also learned a lot and I made mm -hmm. necessary money to pay for this expensive school. One of the things that you get when you do the bathroom cleaning job, it was called dorm crew, mm -hmm. is opportunity to work at the reunions that Harvard hosts mm -hmm. during every commencement week. And those reunion jobs are really prized because you get to interact with the alumni. Right. And you get paid a lot of money because the overtime is unhealthy and insane, but it's just like you could fund your whole summer or more depending mm -hmm. on you know, your burn rate. And so I got this job serving alcohol, mm -hmm. being on the bar team, liquor crew, mm -hmm. to alumni. My After my freshman year, like the end of my first year at Harvard, I've had this experience. I'm pretty sure I'm going to major in philosophy. And it'd be really cool if I could like talk to the future version of myself mm. and find out where this road might go. Yes. It'd be really cool if I could have the most honest conversation possible with that future self. Yes. So why don't I just talk to drunk Baratunde in the future? Yes, and who was that? <laughs> that was everybody I talked to. I don't remember the specific names of the people, but who is I do, drunk Baratunde? <laughs> I remember talking to someone from their 25th reunion, and that's the big one, and they do a big psychological report, and Harvard people take themselves very seriously, you know. Like, and so this is a serious. The 25th is a serious operation for fundraising, for existential, like what am I doing for parenting? All these decisions. People are at this crossroads and they're taking over things like governments or corporations and they're looking back at their lives and they're having panel discussions like a Harvard reunion is like a TED conference, you know, and people are giving talks and they're discussing their failures. And I overheard a lot of this. And at the bar, I people would ask me, 
hey, kid, what are you, what are you into? What are you yeah. majoring? What are you what thinking? Are you, right. I'm, like, I'm thinking about philosophy. I'm, but I'm worried. I don't know. Could I get a, a job? Can I get a job? <laughs> and I, this is, I remember where I was. I don't remember who it was. But I was in the quad, Cabot House, serving alcohol. And someone said to me, listen, it does not matter what you major in here. The thing I am doing, the way I'm making money, has nothing to do with what I studied at Harvard. Mm. Choose what you enjoy. Choose what you love. You will figure out the rest. And this degree will open more doors for you. Wow. That's privilege. great advice. Privilege, and that's a great right? advice. That's privilege. I mean, Harvard is a whole other animal, but I think it's great advice for any single person when yes. they're in that college stage to do really follow their passion, what they yeah. enjoy. It's going to lead somewhere good, even if you can't see the next step in front and of just, you. And explore, right? Explore. Just find find out. And so that, you know, being a professional philosopher, it didn't need to be a thing. Right. And so my, my mother was supportive the whole time. Many of her friends were very confused. And they were <laughs> like- concerned probably. Boy, what you gonna do with a philosopher? You go, somebody gonna hire you as a philosopher? I never heard anybody work. What's a working philosopher do? And so they had jokes and insecurities and inexperience, right? They, they didn't know anybody in their world who had ever majored in philosophy. So they, they weren't trying to you know, burst my bubble, but they just it literally made no sense to them. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. 
With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Well, this is also what's great about this interview and great about you is that this is an example for all those questions that your mom's friends had. You yes. are the, the, the living embodiment of what yes. you do with a philosophy degree. Thank you. Okay. okay? Thank you. Yes, Thank you. You're the living yes. embodiment. What, what do you do with a philosophy degree? What I'm doing? You do a, <laughs> actually, you can do a lot of things, right? Yes. yes. Um, you have worked at The Onion, correct? Correct. You have worked with Trevor Noah as a producer. Correct. Yes. Uh, you have written a New York Times bestselling book, right? These you can do that facts. with a philosophy degree. Yes. How to Be Black, which is a comedic satire. And currently you are hosting a show on PBS. I want to talk about that. But first, before I do that, yeah. talk to me about How to Be Black, why you wrote it, and what <laughs> it is. The book is a comedic memoir, uh, which you know everyone who's in their 20s and 30s should write a memoir. I guess I thought I was Frederick Douglass, and maybe I'll do a couple of <laughs> autobiographies during my time. But uh, I wrote it because an opportunity presented itself, and I was frustrated. Mm. What and, was your frustration? Uh, my frustration was with the story of blackness uh, within the black community, and and I was I was frustrated with kind of the narrow lane that I thought we were allowed to occupy mm. as black people in this country what the we're box. allowed to do, yeah. what right. types of jobs mm -hmm. we're expected to have. Can we can we be interested in philosophy and computer science and nerdy nature things? Or is that not black enough? Mm. You know, as, as policed by black people and as policed by non-black people. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to I was frustrated with the smallness of the of the aperture on yes. that lens through which right. we saw ourselves and the world saw us. And I was like, I have other ideas. Let's <laughs> try to write them down and express them <laughs> loudly. And uh, so th that is that is a big part of the why. Th the opportunity part is equally the case because I didn't set out. A lot of the things I've done in life, I didn't set out explicitly to do. I remained open and, you know, moved when an opportunity was there. Most of the jobs I've had, I wasn't like, I'm going to go get that job. It was like, I'm living my life, doing the things I do, and I hear about or someone brings something to me. And so with the book thing, I had been doing a, a blog with my friend Cheryl Conti, this Black-focused political blog you know, called Jack and Jill Politics. And so we had just thousands and thousands of words and community and thoughts and philosophies about what it means to be a black political being in this country. Oh, um, and, and this is, you know, we rose with the rise of Obama. We started this blog, I think, in like 2005, 2006. Okay. And we 
hit a resonant moment just as the country was turning to this little state senator from Illinois mm -hmm. and looking for people to explain it. Where, where is this coming from? What is going on here? And so that elevated us as we were already in position mm. to have some words to explain what is going on here. Some great and timing, even though you didn't plan it. Didn't plan it, just yeah. living. And, yep. and so we initially, what happened is Cheryl and I were working on a Jack and Jill book, right? Let's mm -hmm. take this blog and turn it into a book. Mm -hmm. And we went through a whole process with publishers and it was unfruitful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dealing with them was actually super negative and really disappointing. And, and uh, at the time it seemed time wasting. But then years later, a couple years later, I was giving a talk in New York at a conference uh, expressing myself loudly. And someone in the audience representing a publisher saw me on stage and was like, you, that dude should write a book. Hmm. Writing a book wasn't an immediate goal. I was happy blogging. You know? mm. I was like, I'm already writing. Am I making money off of it? No, but <laughs> whatever. I'm good. I have a blog. I don't want to murder trees. I have and... a blog, damn it. What else do you want from me? So, you know, that that led to a series of conversations and po proposal possibilities. And I ended up, you know, writing How to Be Black much more as my memoir and, and my thesis on what black being black has meant to me mm -hmm. and also what it's meant to others. And in this constant dynamic in my life, it is it is a memoir of my life. It is also a conversation with other people about their experience and me trying to synthesize all of that into kind of a greater theory and possibility. How did you absorb the reaction to it? Meaning uh, if it became a New York Times bestseller, yeah. uh, for it became that for a reason, did it surprise you that it resonated so deeply with so many others? Sometimes it did. And at some level, no. Mm. The, 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 I felt something in the spark of agreeing to write this. It was true to me. And usually that means I'm, it's, not, it's not just me. That, that's true for most of us. Like we rarely are the only person to experience a thing. Right. And so it's like, okay, there's probably at least my friends. You know? Right. <laughs> they probably there's like a handful of other people who probably see the world kind of like this. As I wrote it and was having the conversations with the people who are also in the book, including Cheryl, I got more confident that there was something there. Yeah. I suspected greatly, and this was just, it had to be proven by releasing it, that there was a, a bigger conversation and a bigger frustration to tap into and a bigger possibility to try to live into. But I truly didn't know. I didn't know hmm. until I did it. Yeah. And, and so when the book came out, I think what was, a couple things were surprising. One was the lack of hate. It's a provocative title. It could irk a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's I'm like proposing that like in the satirical way, but a lot of people don't read satire. They're just like, right. this dude thinks he's going to tell me how to be black. What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And I got a little bit of that. Right. I got a little bit of that. But it, from probably from people who probably didn't really understand it. Yeah. And it was, it was yeah. older people. It was folks who weren't in on the joke or right. didn't want to be in on the joke. They right. wanted to be mad. Sometimes people don't want to be in on the joke. They're like, I prefer my anger. So... <laughs> 
You have fun over there. Well, I'm going to be miserable. The irony is it's the opposite of how to be black. It's the fact yeah, that black people yeah. can be anything. And like, and that's, it, that's it. Right? It's very that's simple. It. Yeah. Spoiler alert. You know, <laughs> there's no way to be black except right. how every black person is being. Yeah. So you don't have to read the book, but it's a fun journey to arrive yeah. at that obvious conclusion. Uh, and then what else was surprising was um, because it's called How to Be Black, because I was leaning deep into black, 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 black. <laughs> the number of people who felt at home in the book mm. who were not black. Mm. Mm. Um, I still remember a conversation I had on, I was on a flight that year and the book got a good amount of press to launch. Like I did the Terry Gross thing. That was so yeah. amazing oh, to cool. do fresh air with Terry Gross. I'm like, I'm yeah. done. I can retire. <laughs> this is good. And um, she was an immigrant from Latin America. And she was like, this is my story. Mm. And I was like, okay, so you're not black. You're not a dude. You're not even born in this country. And you think this is for you. Your story. Wow. Woohoo! Yes. We did something here. We did, yes. yes. More than explicitly desired. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah, that's yeah. art, right? That's yeah. art. When it can, People uh, adopt you, it. Make it their you, own. Yeah, they yeah. make it their own. And, they, and it, it washes over them. And they can take their own interpretation. And they yeah. can be different because of it. What was your inspiration for this series? You're now in season two, I believe, yes. of America Outdoors, which again, another whole box, another departure from another. everything you've done. Or is it? Or is it? Please <laughs> tell me more. So where did the idea come from? And can you explain it to folks who have not seen it? The show is America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston. It airs on PBS. It is produced uh, by Twin Cities Public Television in partnership with a production company called Part Two Pictures, uh, which is okay. based in Brooklyn, New York. The show came about initially, initially from an executive at PBS in like the mothership, PBS mm -hmm. Central. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand this fully. I'm a, I'm a member of PBS. I grew up watching it. Yes. I've pretty much always supported public media wherever I am super always the public radio station because I just listen to audio way more as I've gotten older than I watch television in quotes. But um, now that I'm like in this family, I'm like, oh, wow, there's so much good content on PBS. So mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a subscriber. I'm a member of you know, so PBS SoCal and do the monthly thing. At any rate, PBS as an organization, public television, is a federation. It is the thing you know, those three letters, PBS and viewers like you, Mm -hmm. But it is also 330 plus local stations mm -hmm. who have a lot of autonomy. Mm -hmm. It's basically yes, federalism. It's it's the American experiment in media. <laughs> and and so these two entities work together to figure out what is going to be on air, when and where. And this show is born of a process of both parts of that family. Someone at PBS Central came up with an initial idea to create a show focused on the American outdoors. And they then tapped someone at Twin Cities Public Television. Oh, I see. To like pursue, the, develop this. Yep. What could we do here? 
What could you do here? And then they found you as a host. Yeah. And so that person dug deep and like, and then they found the production company and they're like, we need a host for this. Who's going to, that's okay. That's very cool. So you don't, you're not involved in in the, in the raising of the funds for it or any of that. Not directly. Okay. Um, And, and that may change, but believe me, you want to stay away. You want to stay (laughs) as far. I, as, as someone who has a show on PBS to dine for, and I have to raise all the funds for it. It is no picnic. So go with what, go with that. That's one. Thank That's you like a dream that. scenario. Thank you, my mentor, my yes. PBS big sis. Yes, dream scenario. <laughs> and and I, I was able to catch um, the episode in uh, Oregon, and it was beautifully shot. Mm. And your voice is so tranquil. I felt like I was in the midst of the forest there with you. Why did you want to do it? Or what about the project? Yeah. You said, hey, yes, yes. So the show began somewhat directly and beautifully and simply as like, let's explore the American outdoors, right? And, and so with that initial instinct, it's like, we are going to look at the outdoors. But the show is not an outdoor show to me, not exactly. This is a show about people who are connected to the outdoors mm. deeply in ways that many of us, I'd say most of us, have forgotten, mm. myself included. Mm. And so when this opportunity emerged for me, in my inbox, as sometimes opportunity does. And it's like, hey, would you be interested in doing a PBS show on the American outdoors? And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. And in my conversation with the initial producers, before there's anything's been shot, they're still figuring out what the show even is. They were like, why you? Why do you want to do this? You're politics, dude. You're tech tech guy. (laughs) You You speak at South by Southwest and do all the things. You're on MSNBC yelling about... Trump and Bush and Obama and all the stuff. Okay, cool. Yes, those are all true. And I'm a Boy Scout. Hmm. And I yes, was like and. a fellow adventurer with my mother, yes. hiking and biking and camping and fishing. Wow. And I miss that part of me. Hmm. And I want to kind of come back to that hmm. more consciously. So this show is a great pathway back to a big part of myself. Hmm. I would love to do that. I think you need to choose me because I'm not known as like a great outdoorsman with with fist on hips and and chin held high on a on a mountaintop. Look at me with my flag and my claim on this land. Nah. I'm a I'm a dude who lives in his inbox who yeah. misses going outside. Let's do this. I'm probably right. more representative of the audience. And you're more you're you're urban. I mean, you grew up right? Abs- you grew I grew up, up in, in the DC. City. Yeah, yeah. So I feel yeah. like it's kind of nice to have someone who, you know, didn't grow up in Appalachia. Right. Yeah, I didn't have to like fend for my food. Right. I didn't hunt. I didn't oh. farm. I did though work in an urban garden as a child. Yeah. And the food that I grew fed me and my mom and my sister. So I was like a little urban farming kid bringing radishes home and I loved it and I just drifted from it. So I have this authentic connection. Yeah. I also I have this that. authentic disconnection. So that's that that was really attractive to me. It clearly made sense to them and then we worked together to figure out okay, well what's this show going to be? And then how do we make sure that with Baratunde Thurston is like an authentic thing that we're doing with these stories? You've been everywhere. You've been to the Carolinas. You've been to Utah. You've been to Oregon. What have you learned personally about being in the outdoors from doing this program? Hmm. I have learned that 
a lot of what I need is right here. I, I like solving problems. I like figuring things out. I'm still that kid in the chalkboard at Harvard doing the math. Sometimes like the way to balance that equation is to look down, is to embrace something living that's been here for a while. And my own like hyper intellectualism mm -hmm. needs a balance of groundedness, mm. of embodied experience, not just mental gymnastics. Mm. And I know I'm clever. I, I know, I know I can communicate clean and figure it out and I can, I can do the math, I can run the numbers, but that's not all of me. It's not wholly satisfying. Mm -hmm. And being able to have so many different experiences in so many different places with so many different people, it's not just that I get dropped into a place and like, oh, I'm, I'm on a butte in Utah. Hello, butte, how do you do? It's like, no, I'm on the butte with someone mm -hmm. <laughs> who already lives in that embodied connection. And I'm a sponge. Mm -hmm. I, I learn through mirroring, right? I mirrored my mom, like, and, and I find my own self within that, but I get to learn alongside and feel, okay, what does this water feel like? This was like to paddle. This was like on this horse. This mm -hmm. was like on the side-by-side. -side. This was like yeah. holding this shotgun. This was like climbing this tree. And I need to remember some of those things that I have forgotten. And um, that's been a very, very personal education and like gift that I've gotten from this show. It's like a deep presence. You yes. know, people talk about being present as if it's just throwaway words. Yeah. But what does it really mean to be present? Mm -hmm. And I feel like nature and being in a forest or wherever specifically yeah. can teach you about presence. You, you, it's not something you can really talk about. You almost have to, it's a feeling. It's, it's, you have, it's, yeah, you can. Yeah. It's like the matrix. You have to see it for yourself, yeah. says in Morpheus' <laughs> voice. But yeah, the, because these other beings... All they are is present. Yes. Right? These trees don't write white papers. Yes. You know, they don't argue on social media. Right. They just live. Right. And, and these raccoons and these waterways, like, they're just there. And and so to, to, to just try to be there with them is really, it's an interesting, you know, going part way, like meeting nature where it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and not trying to bring everything into the world of the mind that that a lot of us live in a lot of the time. I, I recently was in New York City and I, I lived there for five years and I yeah. absolutely am always so energized and inspired when I'm there and walk away a different person from every trip. But yeah. it's almost like I need the juxtaposition of being there and not being in there right. to appreciate it and to get more from it. Because when I lived there day in, day out, it really wore me down. The, the it, it was over, over sensory for me. Yes. And it became, instead of energizing, it became a grind. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like nature does that for us, right? It takes us away and brings us back, takes us away. And it's it's a, back. it's a recharge. It's a, it's yes. a supercharger. And I have the same relationship with New York that you do. I lived there for 12 years. I've been gone for almost five. I was recently there for two and a half weeks, and I'm actually spending a lot of time there this fall. And uh, But the two and a half weeks was the longest I'd been there yeah. since not living there. 
Uh-huh. And whoo, did I ride that wave? I was like, oh boy. And my wife was like, do you want to move back here? Because <laughs> she was mostly overwhelmed by and it. And where do you most live now? Time. In Los Angeles. Okay. In north, northeast LA. Okay. Um, and I was like, don't worry. I do not want to move back here full yeah. time. Right. I do need to move within this space a bit yes. more. Right. For that exact reason you just yeah. shared. Yeah. Where do you it, live now? I live in, live in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. I feel like in my heart, I am a city person. Yeah. But yet being in a city wholly doesn't serve me. And it's a it's a real and an or as well, yeah. you know, to be in it and then to, to, to get everything you can out of it and then be away from it to appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Yes. And sometimes it's just a bit much to be fighting for every inch of your yeah. life in in, a, in an environment like New York. It was as just as you said, it wasn't it became depleting, you know, rather yes. than energizing. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm just like, I don't need to compete for everything all the time. Right. Like just getting out you, of the building, getting yeah, on the train. It makes you very competitive. Getting off the train. Yes. Like every moment is this, it's this the brutal marketplace of supply and demand and competition. Yes. It's like sometimes I just want to walk. <laughs> and it's also a part of my personality I don't like. I can be competitive mm. if I need to be, but yeah. I don't like that part of me. I don't like that part of me that has to win. Because that's not what life's about. It's not about winning. I, we are we share that a lot. Part yeah. of the move to LA was to draw out a different part. Because yes. the, the New York part, that hyper competitive, like throwing elbows, he's in there. Yes. And he will tear you up. Get yes. out the way. <laughs> yes. But there's also like the sitting in the backyard listening to the birds. He's in there too. And he would yes. really like to come out and play. Yes. And he might be more enjoyable to have a cocktail <laughs> <Yes>. with. <laughs> Okay, last question, because I, I want to be really respectful of your time. Yeah. I want to kind of create this kind of full circle moment of this conversation mm -hmm. because we started about talking about how you are the living embodiment of what you can do with a philosophy degree. But I want to take you back to when you were serving drinks at the reunion at okay. Harvard. Yeah. And what would you tell the person who is going to do that this year? who is going to serve drinks, who might be toying with a philosophy degree or anything, really a creative endeavor, what would you tell that young student as they embark on a creative path? What advice would you give them? Ooh, pay down those loans as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, drink a lot of water, stay hydrated. It's very, it's like the most useful advice I could probably offer a young person because their world is gonna be a lot different from mine. Stay flexible. Stay flexible. And, you know, finding the group of people or groups of people with whom you can navigate this changing world and together investing in the world you want to live in, try to figure out something like that. I, I would never tell someone specifically, you got to invest in AI. Like, I don't know. You know, there's some <laughs> tactical skills that are probably going to be useful to the future. I just I know the future is gonna be changing a lot faster than it used to mm -hmm. before it became the future, and that we need to hold on to other things to anchor ourselves. We can't hold on to jobs. We can't hold on to the foods that we're used to eating. Like climate mm -hmm. change is shifting all that, so we've gotta gotta hold on to each other. 
mm. and and work together and collaborate and like practice that. Like get really good at that. Mm. Get really good at being with other people and figuring out how to navigate with others and live with others and disagree with others. That's going to serve you mm. the most as all these other things that we thought we knew start changing and start looking differently. It. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for this conversation. I've enjoyed this so much. It's, it's wonderful to talk with Me you. Too, Thank Kate. you, Baratunde. Thank you so much, Kate. Great to be on this show with you. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.